Are you looking to become a leader in clean energy and an expert in clean tech? Do you hope to get noticed in the crowd as you pursue a career in this fastly growing industry? You are in the right place. Join Karan Takar as he invites clean energy leaders to share industry developments, highlight clean tech investment opportunities, and shed light on how you can increase your chances of employment in this high-growth sector. We will also discuss the energy transition across key emerging markets like India and explore partnership opportunities for the U.S. private and public sector. After all, this is the Zenergy Podcast. In this conversation, we'll be speaking with Alexander Hogvinreiter, who's leading the IFC's market creation efforts for energy storage in India. We discuss the main costs of energy storage systems and whether renewable energy generation, complemented by storage, can outcompete coal. I hope you enjoy this wide-ranging discussion. Hi, Mr. Hogveen Rudder. Thank you sincerely for taking the time. I've been looking forward to speaking with you and have been reading many of your very interesting articles via LinkedIn and other sources. And prior to diving in, could you please briefly introduce yourself so that listeners can get an understanding of the extent of your involvement in the energy sector and also provide some insight into what got you interested in this space? Well, firstly, it's an honor to be here. So so thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to, to talk to you today. I've been passionate about this space for, for a very long time. I remember when I was 16, uh, I was in an entrepreneurial competition and we, we proposed having solar panels, thin film solar panels on blinds. So, you know, I think climate change has been something that I've been concerned about for a long time. And I've certainly been interested in, in looking at that. So I worked primarily for a power utility back in Canada as a renewable energy utility. And I also worked on uh, renewable energy integration there. I came to India about five years ago. I did work in consulting a bit and, and in the energy sector a bit, and recently joined IFC, where I'm very focused now on energy storage specifically in, in India and, and across Asia Pacific. And so we're looking at, at various forms of energy storage as well as, as well as green hydrogen. And so I think you know, we at IFC have, have made a, a big focus on, on climate change, and it's something that's, that's very near and dear to my heart. And you know, with the recent IPCC report, um, just last week, I think that that further reinforced the need that this is, you know, really a, a really pressing issue for everyone. Thank you for providing that background. Analysis of the levelized cost of electricity, as you alluded to in your articles, suggests that renewables are already cheaper sources of generation than coal in most cases. And I just wanted to dive a little bit deeper into the fact that because renewables are intermittent, storage obviously will need to play a more complementary role, especially as penetration levels continue to rise. And as a result of that, integration costs possibly will continue to rise as well. And if you could provide insight into what are the main costs of energy storage technologies, and how these costs have evolved over time. First, I want to start with kind of the, the question about around intermittency. So it is important to note that when you're at fairly low levels of, of renewable penetration, 
better grid management, changing your operating practices, having more flexible existing generators, having good pricing signals in place, demand response. You know, there are lots of kind of fairly low cost tools you can use to help manage that interdependency, right? And I think as India kind of ramps up to its 450 gigawatt target, as countries around the world start to be more and more ambitious going to say 100% renewable energy, that's where you really need storage to get you from, you know, a low to a high amount. So, I mean, I think it's no secret, you know, everybody, you can look at the Bloomberg New Energy Finance numbers on, on the cost of energy storage. They really, you know, dropped dramatically in over the past, you know, five, 10 years. A similar trajectory has happened with solar and, and wind in the previous decades. I think the one caveat I want to make, and this is true for solar as well, is that as the cost of the packs themselves come down, the balance of plant costs aren't coming down the same, right? So your engineering costs are the same, development costs are the same, your inverter costs aren't coming down as much. Those extra overheads you have are not coming down as much. So I think, you know, I saw some analysis recently where balance of plant was actually more than 50% of the cost, right? And so, you know, and this is true in solar, right, as well, where even though the cost panels are, are, you know, 30 cents a watt or cheaper, the majority of the cost now is actually in that balance of plant and, and engineering and all these other overheads. So I think it, it really shows that there is a limit to how cheap you can get. I read the other day that lithium ion, the, the materials, just the, the pure like raw lithium and raw cobalt and all these other metals is going to cost at least $30 a kilowatt hour. So at some point, you just have physical limits as to how cheap they can get. And you're going to have to look at other technologies, like whether it's iron air or, or what have you. But I think there is still some room for cost to fall a bit more. But at some point, you are going to hit these hard limits where you know, you're going to need to do engineering, you're going to need to design, you're going to need an inverter, and you just can't get around those costs. Understood. Could you provide a breakdown of the various categories of costs for energy storage systems? Yeah, I mean, well, I guess it depends on technology, right? Like, obviously, pump storage is, is going to be very different. And I think there's a lot of innovative work, you know, whether you, it's the thermal storage or various types that are geologically limited. I, I'm guessing you're talking about, about batteries. As I said, a big, big cost of that right now, at least, is just, you know, the cells. Lithium is expensive, manufacturing it, very energy intensive process. So that's going to be a big, you know, 30 to 40% of your, your final cost. The pack assembly, which is, you know, now India is getting to a point where they're doing a lot of pack assembly domestically. It's not trivial, but it's not a huge cost component. You've obviously got the BMS and the software. That's, you know, again, another 5%, 10%. And then, as I said, almost half the, the cost now is going to be balance of plan. And balance of plan is a really kind of messy, ugly term for everything else, right? You know, whether it's wiring, whether it's cables, whether it's protection equipment. And I think one big cost is the inverter. So if you actually put your battery co-located with the solar... And you can use the same inverter, you actually can potentially save, you know, 20 to 30%. With the caveat being that your inverter might be more expensive because your inverter is now a, a dual purpose inverter, right? There's no such thing as a free lunch to get around it. But yeah, those are, those would be kind of the main, the main cost components. And do these cost categories fluctuate across, say, storage systems for CNI consumers versus storage systems for larger utility scale plants? Yeah, so that's actually a really great question. So we're actually doing a project on, on CNI storage right now. And one of the big barriers to a lot of big players entering the market is saying, well, people are expecting $300 per kilowatt hour, $250 per kilowatt hour, because that's the utility scale price. But to do it at CNI level, when it's smaller scale, you know, maybe it's $600 or $700 per kilowatt hour, because you're just your overheads, your engineering, your sales, your marketing, your 
site checks, all those things, you know, they, they seem kind of a little bit abstract, but they really, really add up in aggregate, especially, you know, the tier one suppliers who, you know, are going to have a long warranty and how they've got a service. Are they going to service it? Are they going to maintain it? Are they going to provide a 10-year service contract in a remote area? Well, that's, that's not cheap, right? And so maybe that's $900 per kilowatt hour. And so I think it's, it's really important that it really, really depends on the context of, of what you're talking about. And people have to be realistic as to what price they're going to achieve, given the actual site conditions and given the scale that they're talking about, which is actually why one of the key for, I think, unlocking the CNI storage market is to come up with kind of modular solutions. And you see some providers now, which will have, you know, a box and it's a thick size, it's a 10 kilowatt hour box, and it's got the inverter and the battery and everything, the cooling all in kind of one modular container. And I think that's a step in the right direction. But then obviously that means maybe you have a suboptimal size. because Maybe the optimal size is 7.5 and you have to choose between 5 and 10. And so you're, you're potentially suboptimizing your system to keep the, the cost down. And so that is, that is a challenge for the CNI space particularly. So as it pertains to the CNI space in India, have there been a lot of companies or institutes which have already implemented storage systems? Telecom has been really big on this. You know, you have a lot of telecom towers in remote areas. They had very high uptime requirements. So they had diesel generators running. And so the the business case for using energy storage instead of diesel is, is very strong there. Another one is bank branches, kind of rural bank branches, rural ATMs. A third one is data centers where you, again, you have very, very high uptime requirements. So you might actually, you still have the diesel generator, but you have your grid power, your battery, and your diesel generator, right? So I think those three sectors are fairly well established. Particularly telecom towers, you kind of have a very standard modularized solution, right? Every, everything's going to be a five kilowatt or a 10 kilowatt hour solution. And so you can come up with, and you can have a contract to say, I'm going to buy a thousand of these and I'm going to maintain a thousand of these. And so because you can standardize that, you can lower these engineering costs and lower all, all these overhead costs I talked about, right? We're working right now to try and figure out how to expand that model to CNI more generally, whether it's you know, manufacturing or malls or hospitality or what have you. But it's, it's just a bit tricky because you, your business case is not as straightforward and you have different uptime requirements, you have different size requirements, and you have different diesel consumption. And it just it gets a lot more messy and complicated. Understood. How about from the grid scale storage side? Could you provide some background into where India stands on that front, what projects have been implemented, and maybe what you foresee as the largest barriers to further unlocking that market? Yeah, so I think it is certainly moving in the right direction. As I alluded to earlier, I think people, there's a lot of hype and excitement about the 175 gigawatt by 2022 target. But the bottom line is renewable energy, or at least variable renewable energy, wind and solar, you know, it's only like 20% of, of India's energy mix right now. And people are often thrown off by the capacity figure. They're thinking, oh, 175 gigawatts sounds like a lot of capacity. But when you actually multiply that by the, the utilization factor, India is still at a very early stage in its renewable journey. But right now, we're just starting to get to an inflection point. When you start to get 250, 350, 450, you're going to actually need um, storage integrate. You can't just do that with, with improved operating practices. And I think that's reflected in, so you've got these pilots Tata Power DDL in, in Delhi with its, its kind of 10 megawatt in hour installation. You've got some legacy projects, like there's this pumped hydro project in West Bengal that they've been using for decades for, for grid balancing, and it's 900 or 1200 megawatts. It's working, right? And so I think there is that history, that legacy of, of using energy storage. 
But now you're really starting to see it ramp up. You've got this tender from NTPC, you've got this tender from Seki, you had these RTC tenders in the last couple of years. And I think right now people are still trying to figure it out what the sizing is and what the technical parameters should be and what kind of guarantees and warranties. And I think it's good that, that India is figuring it out right now because I think it needs to ramp up by, by 2030. And so all the signs are, are positive that, that it's moving in the right direction for sure. So as I said, I, I think a lot of this is time. Like I think we got to put out these tenders, see what works. You can't wait for things to be perfect and that figure everything out. You need to try something, see what the discoms are interested in, get grid operators comfortable with using energy storage. Honestly, one of the biggest barriers is just operator comfort. And this is not a problem exclusive to India. Even in Canada, I used to work in the control center and you have these operators who, who operated for 10, 20, 30 years. And now you're trying to add new things to their system. And it, it's a different mindset, right? Especially you know in India where 10 years ago, you were in a power deficit situation. And so every kilowatt hour is a good kilowatt hour. There's turning off a coal in the middle of the day. Why would you turn a coal plant off in the middle of the day? You want, you want all that energy, right? And so there's better use of forecasting and there's, and there's better use of flexibilizing your existing assets. But a lot of it is just your you know, mindset change. You have to get people used to changing the way they operate. And a lot of that is you have these legacy practices and you also have legacy PPAs, which you don't want to reopen existing PPAs. Like it's just ugly to reopen existing PPAs. But as these PPAs expire, as the grid grows, hopefully you're not signing any new coal PPAs. All the new PPAs will be with, with renewable energy and storage. And then as it starts to become a bigger and bigger fraction of the total energy, then I think grid operators will get more comfortable. But I think part of it is just it's just time to get that level of comfort. And firstly, I, sh- I, should, I should make the caveat that, that this is my personal views. This isn't necessarily reflective of the IFC view. There are a couple areas, ancillary services market, there's this draft ancillary services regulation. Um, I think, again, that's a step in the right direction. There's these, these pilot schemes, RRAS, FRAS. Seeing these implemented nationwide, I think, would be a, a huge step in the right direction. I think that's, that's the direction that, that is, we're moving anyway. Time of use pricing, I think, is a big factor. You know, right now, if the actual grid cost, the system cost of providing for that evening peak is higher. But, but there's no incentive for people to, to try and shift their load. And so, you know, whether it's agricultural consumers, you know, solarizing your, your um, agriculture pumps, putting them in the day, whether it's, you know, trying to shift air conditioning load or using thermal storage, whether it's, you know, as EVs come online, having smart EVs that are charging in the middle of the night rather than the evening peak. But ultimately, none of those will happen by government dictate. Those will only happen if there's an economic incentive. So you need some sort of demand charge or time of use incentive. And then once you've exhausted all those other options, again, energy storage will make sense on its own. And you look at, say, California or Ontario, where the difference between the peak price and the off-peak price is so large that you can justify building that storage. And you don't need to dictate that people should add storage. They will add storage just based on the price differential. A third piece, I would say, depending on what you call it, some people call it contract for differences. But I, I kind of like to use the example of, you know, in Canada, what we had was we would sell, let's say, 500 megawatts firm power to our friends in the United States. And effectively, it's a market system. You can't, you're not allowed, to, you're not even allowed to sell bilaterally. You have to bid it into the market. And so what ended up happening was we would effectively always be selling. We would, in our planning pr- process, we would kind of account for that 500 megawatts as though it was domestic load. And they would account for 500 megawatts as though it was their load. And so from our kind of state level or provincial level planning exercise, 
they're assuming it's theirs. We're assuming it's theirs. And then in, in real time, though, we're just selling it into the market and they're buying from the market. And whatever the market clearing price is, whatever the market clearing price is. And we've just got an agreement that at the end of the month or the quarter of the year or whatever, we're settling for whatever the difference is between you know, the average market clearing price and what we agreed to in the contract. So you get the benefits of you can, as a discom or as a generator, you can have a long-term stability, which obviously a, an organization like IFC, we want to see bankability. We want to see a 10, 15-year, 20-year PPA. The discom obviously wants predictable prices for their consumers. They don't want to be exposing consumers to fluctuating prices. But you get the efficiency of the market in that the market is allocating resources in real time. And right now, there's a disconnect in the Indian market where, I mean, the perfect example of this is you have wind PPAs, these legacy wind PPAs coming in at, say, five, six rupees per unit. And so there's a very, very strong incentive, whatever the government dictate on must-run statuses, there's a very strong incentive for the DISCOM to try and curtail that wind and say there's technical limitations or whatever. But in reality, the marginal cost of wind is zero, right? And so you, you really want the market to be reflecting the actual genuine marginal economic cost. And you want the contractual PPA, the actual how much, it's gonna, how much money is going to change hands, that should be dealt with separately from, from the, the operations of the system. And contract for differences is one way to do that. Very interesting. That would lead nicely into the next question or segment, which involves analysis of the economics of energy storage systems as they pertain to other energy sources. In your article, Where is RE Plus Storage Already Cheaper Than Coal? You stated that in India, the US, Poland, and Australia, renewable energy plus storage is already cheaper than coal. And thus, there should be no new coal built purely for economic reasons in these regions. I'm just curious as to how you conducted this analysis and you could provide some insight into your methodology and how you got to this conclusion, because that's a big finding. I will give the caveat that this is a fairly rough high-level analysis. I actually was just reading a paper from the Indian Institute of Statistical Science where they did uh, a much deeper look at India specifically and they tried to incorporate some of the societal costs as well, like the, the pollution costs and the health costs and that sort of thing. Maybe in the show notes, you can add the link to that. That's an, an even deeper dive. And it came to the same conclusion. The analysis is fairly straightforward. I took the average cost of new renewable energy, which was either solar or wind or, or some combination, depending on the country, and added storage. And now here's, here's the trick. How much storage do you really need? And a lot of people say, well, you, you need 24 by 7 power. And if you actually want 24 by 7 power, you need a lot, a lot, a lot of storage. But realistically, in today's environment, you don't need 24 by 7 storage because you have, you, know, you have hydro, you have gas, you have your legacy coal assets, you have your legacy PPAs. And again, working in a distribution utility, working for a grid operator, realistically, you're really only trying to meet a handful, a couple hundred hours a year. In this analysis, I used four hours, I think. With four hours of storage, that can get you to say 50, 60, 70% renewable. Getting that final 20%, you might need more storage or green hydrogen or, or long-term storage or something. But this was framed in the sense of what is the cost of four hours of storage? And so it's it pretty simple. It was, okay, what's the cost of four hours of storage using I think 260 or $300 per kilowatt hour, kind of a standard utility scale cost of energy storage. Add that to the average solar wind, compare that to the average, average coal price. Now, the caveat there is I'm looking at average coal prices. 
and it's new coal. So it's new coal. So it includes the CapEx. It's certainly cheaper than new coal, but there is going to be variations. Let's say you have a pithead plant. A pithead plant is going to be more competitive than a plant that needs to transport that coal 1,500 kilometers, right? It's going to depend on your coal efficiency. But I think the value that the DOE came up with was, I think it was, I want to say 3.5 rupees per unit for new coal, which if you look at the cost of coal PPAs that have been signed in the last five years, I mean, that's, if anything, that's optimistic for coal. So I think if anything, these results are conservative. I think if you think about FGDs and the other environmental requirements and coal transport and hedging and all this, it would be tough to build a coal plant, a new coal plant for three and a half rupees per unit. Thank you for expanding on that. Another important step in the decarbonization effort will be out competing existing coal plants. At least some arguments or proponents of people who want to integrate renewable energy at higher levels, they state that to do so, they'll also need to replace unutilized coal capacity which will likely require renewable energy and storage to be cost competitive with the variable cost of coal, as opposed to when conducting analysis on new builds, I assume it's variable cost of coal plus fixed cost of coal. If you could expand on whether you foresee renewable energy plus storage systems being able to outcompete just the variable cost of coal in the near future. Yeah. So if there's one takeaway from this podcast, it's please, no new coal. Do not build new coal. This is an important discussion to have, but the priority should really be on making sure that no new coal is built. The legacy contracts, you know, you've got these legacy PPAs. As I said, I, I think honoring the sanctity of contracts just from a, a business stability and a, keeping the discount rate, the risk premium low is so important. So I really wouldn't want to open up existing PPAs for sure. That said, I think there are a lot of you know, if you look at the marginal cost curve of existing coal plants, you can go to Merit India right now and, and look it up. It's all over the place. There's coal plants that are, are producing power at a marginal cost of one, 1. 1.5 rupees per unit. And there's coal plants that are at four or five rupees per unit, right? And so if, it's, if your plant is at five rupees per unit, your discount could potentially save a lot of money by switching to RE storage today. And now, does that mean having some sort of payout to the existing coal plant? I think it's easier in many cases, let's just wait till the PPA retires and just simply don't renew the PPA. If an old plant needs a retrofit or an FGD replace, you know, upgrade, say, let's, we're not going to retrofit it. We're not going to upgrade it. We're just going to shut it down. Once you've done all that, <laughs> you know, once you've hit your 450 gigawatts renewable energy, then maybe let's take a look at, at if we should start more systematically closing down coal plants. And this would be different in developed countries where your, your electricity load is um, no longer growing, right? You're, you don't have demand growth anymore and you have energy efficiency. There, I think you should be looking at adding renewable energy and taking out existing coal. But in India, there should be enough demand growth in the next 10 years to absorb a lot of, let's make sure all that new incremental demand growth is being met by renewable energy. Let's make sure all the old, really old coal plants that need to be re- retrofitted or retired, let's make sure those are replaced with renewable energy. And by 2050, I think you can get to 2050, maybe in 2040, 2050, you'll still have a handful of coal plants that haven't reached their natural end of life. And you can look at trying to retire them early. But that just wouldn't be a priority for me. What would be a priority is, is looking at reducing their capacity factor. So right now, an operator, again, would have a lot of hesitation to turn off a coal plant because you want to have those operating reserves. Maybe you have you know, a legacy relationship 
because you used to have a vertically integrated utility. And so there's both good technical reasons not to turn off that coal plant. And there's kind of these softer reasons not to turn off that coal plant. And so you both need to have the confidence, whether it's energy storage acting as sacred forming inverters, providing synthetic inertia, maybe it's converting old coal plants. There's a really good paper from the World Bank recently on converting old coal plants to synchronous condensers to provide inertia, particularly near major load centers like Mumbai or Delhi. You need some inertia near that load center to make sure you're, you have grid stability, right? I mean, this is a pretty roundabout answer, but I, but I think the bottom line is that you need to get comfortable turning off coal plants during the middle of the day when there's lots of solar and during monsoon season when there's lots of wind. And again, I'll, I'll use the example from back in Canada. We had these two gas plants and one coal plant. And they had capacity factors of like 5%. And they were there in case there was a drought or in case there was some local stability issue, like if a transmission line was out, you wanted that kind of local generation to support the voltage in that population center, in that load center. And that was okay. The energy costs were super high. They were old, inefficient plants, but they were there for emergency use. And effectively, we paid a very high capacity cost to have that capacity if we really needed it to make sure the light stayed on but we weren't using them for energy. And I think shifting that, that mindset where maybe I have this legacy coal plant and maybe I'm not going to retire it because I still need that voltage support in that local area if a transmission line goes out, or maybe I still need it for 100 hours a year on the hottest day of year when everybody's running their AC, and maybe we're going to pay that fixed capacity charge uh, in the PPA to keep that plant open just for those 100 hours a year. But we're only going to run it 100 hours a year. We're only going to run it 500 hours a year. And I think that's a huge, in many cases, the PPA is take or pay, so you have to pay for it. But in many cases, the PPA, you know, yeah, you can do that. You can just pay for the capacity and not the energy. But it's that mindset shift of accepting that I'm, I'm going to have this asset and hardly ever use it, which is very counterintuitive, right? Why would I buy a car if I'm hardly ever going to use it? But if you already have the car and it's sitting in your garage, take it when you really need it. But on most days, if the metro is cheaper, take the metro. And if it's, you know, if it's raining or, or you're going on vacation and there is no metro, fine. Take, take the car when you really need it. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Hogveen Rudder. I really appreciate this. Lots of great insights. Thanks so much for reaching out. This is fun. Just as a closing remark, I did want to thank my friend and colleague, Devesh Singh, who I work with on a lot of these issues. And, and before this interview, we, we talked about some of these issues again to, to help prepare. So I, I just want to give him credit for all mistakes are mine, but all, all wisdom is his. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Check out the episode description or show notes for more information on our guest. See you next time.